We are in the second week of a teaching series called First Comes Love, Then Comes Baggage. It's all about relationships. This is a big to be continued from last week. I'm going to do my best to catch you up. But you remember last week I talked about these pie charts. And uh, I said, you know, when it comes to fault in an argument, it would be ideal if people would say, oh, it's 50% my fault, 50% their fault. You know, that would be, that would be awesome. But usually that's not how we see it. I mean, usually in a lot of relationships, we view it like this. We say, well, it was mostly their fault. It's like 20% my fault. And usually the math that we give it is we say, well, I should put 20% of my efforts on the 20% that's my fault. And I should put 80% of my efforts on the 80% that's their fault. That would be fair. The problem is the only part of the relationship that you have control over is your fault. So why would you put 80% of your efforts into something that you can't control? And the challenge last week was to put 90% of your effort into whatever part of the problem is your fault. And many of you probably experienced a lot of gains in your relationship. Things got better, and that's good. It's a big gain. But what do you do with the part of the relationship that's still on the table? What do you do when you've owned your part and they look at you, maybe they looked at you this last week and they're like, it's about time. And now you're like, Pastor, now I want to kill him. You know, now I want to, now I want to do something bad. And you still have 80% of the problem on the table of argument. It's not resolved. You still have this big roadblock in the relationship. How do we address that? You know, and a lot of you, that's your relationship. You're dealing with a big pile up of issues in your relationship and you've owned your part, but they won't own their part. What do you do? What do you? That's what I want to talk about this week. And uh, today, even if you're not a Christian, you're going to love this message. Jesus' teaching on this is truly transformative. It's super helpful. And uh, you guys are going to love this. This is one of my favorite things that Jesus teaches. Maybe my favorite thing that he teaches about. It's super special. And Jesus was the first one in human history to invent it. Humans don't arrive at this naturally. This is one of those supernatural things that God gives to us, and it's, it's just really powerful. Jesus invented it. And I think it gives Christians a supernatural advantage in relationships. I mean, all the data tells us Christians have the highest level of relational, personal, and sexual satisfaction, and I believe that comes out of the thing I'm going to teach you today. So no matter what your beliefs, you're going to want to lean into this. Um, the other day, my dad was selling a property that he had, and him and my mom were out of the country um, in Europe. Life is rough. You know, I mean, it's got to do it. So dad made me his power of attorney. He wanted me to deal with this property sale, which is a terrible idea because I have no idea what I'm doing. You know what I mean? I'm like a golden retriever at a computer keyboard. You know, I just, uh, whatever, right? So I'm reading this agreement because I'm trying to be a responsible guy. Normally when you have a big, long agreement, you just, where do I sign? You know what I mean? Like I don't want it. It's overwhelming. But I was actually reading this thing and it had lots of different little things like the seller will do this, the buyer will do that. The buyer will do this, the seller will do that. You know, and it was really, really defined, whatever. And what it was, was a contract. And a contract is a document that's designed to make things fair. That's what a con contract is supposed to do. And if a buyer gets a huge advantage, well, then it's a bad contract. If a seller gets a huge advantage, then it's a bad contract. The, the best case scenario with a contract is things are neutral when you're done, like things are fair. It was fair, it was good, it was fair. And what a contract is, is a give and take. I give you this, you give me that. Both parties respect each other at the end of a well-executed contract. The goal is to shake hands and depart amicably, knowing that everything was fair. That's a contract. Paul actually talks about a contract. Our key passage today is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. We're going to exposit it verse by verse super clearly. You might want to mark up your Bible with it. I will have it on the screen. But it um, says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. We used to look at things from a human point of view, which is a contract point of view. 
Like humans, we all think in the terms of give and take, give and take, that's what we do. And Paul says a lot of people view God that way. You know, it's like I scratch God's back, he scratches my back. I give to God, he gives back to me. We live a good life, God rewards us. It's a give and take. And that's how a lot of people view God and how a lot of people view relationships with this contractual mindset. If I'm good to God, he'll be good to me. If I'm good to my spouse, she'll be good to me. If I'm good to my boss, she'll be good back to me. That's how we view it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you have a mindset like that, it's called a contract mindset, the best case scenario you can get out of life is neutral. How's your relationships? They're good. They're fine. They're neutral. It's fair. You know, how's your marriage? It's fair. It's fair. It's even. It's good. We've uh, created a good domestic partnership. And that's sad, isn't it? I mean, how many of you ladies grew up thinking, someday I hope to have a fair and equitable relationship with a husband where we can share domestic and professional responsibilities in a manner that is fair and even? That's not your goal. That's not a, we don't have romance novels that are like that. I mean, you don't read these things thinking, oh my goodness, someday I really hope it's fair. We don't make friendships. You know, how are your friendships? They're fair. It's fair. You know, we have a really even, you know, I cry on her, she cries on me. It's very even. No, that's dumb. And yet, how many of us, we know some older people, this is how they live. What is life? Well, life's a give and take. You know, you give and they give back and it's fair. It's even. It's equitable. No, that's lame. See, the problem, the problem with the contract mentality is there's no upside. And the real problem is when a problem comes along. When you get cancer, when you lose your job, when you make a mistake, when you have a breakdown, the contract gets broken and the marriage becomes unfair. And someone in a contract marriage, well, they have a contract mentality for the marriage. Um, what do they do when it gets unfair? They say, all I do is give. All I do, you know, I mean, and you met people like, all I do is give, you know, it's just, and it's such a whatever, and they're just taking the old ball and chain, you know, and it's just so frustrating, and I'm just getting taken advantage of, you know, I'm tired, and you talk with your friends at work, and you talk, you talk with your guys, and they're like, oh, you know, she's just whatever, and he's just whatever, you have this thing, and that's the outlook of contract mentality relationships, and in a contract mentality relationship, what happens is when the going gets tough, the tough get going away, they leave, they go to divorce court, they're out of here, the friendship, the marriage, what do they say, I just can't. I just can't anymore. It's done. That's a contract relationship. The sad part is the absolute best you can get isn't good. It's not great. It's just fair. That's sad. Contract mentality for relationships is really the pervasive method of doing relationships in society today. No wonder why marital satisfaction is so low. Have you ever met somebody who has this mentality? Have you ever been in a deep relationship with somebody who has this mentality? It's most people. And when you're in that kind of relationship, you know it because they have a list in their mind, a ledger. I know what I gave to them last year and I Googled the price of it, so I'm gonna make sure that I give them the present that's the exact same price. You know, I wanna make sure and I helped them move six years ago, so I know they have to help me move now because I got a favor hanging out and I'm keeping score and whatever else. And they always, and they keep scoring. Everything's a scoreboard. And Paul says, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. I mean, at one time we viewed people that way. At one time we said, but we have stopped for God. Check out verse 19. It says, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And I want you to see these three words, these three words. No longer counting. What? No longer. God is no longer counting people's sins against them. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What? And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. God's no longer counting. And here, I have one big point today, and I want you to get this, this is a really big point, one big point. I want you to stop counting. I've got lots of subpoints, but the main gist of today's message is stop counting. And I know some of you are like, wait, wait a minute, 
Uh, pastor, uh, whoop, whoop, uh, little issue here. Counting is how you make a contract. I mean, it's, if we can't count, how are we supposed to do life? How are we supposed to be in relationship with one another? And Paul's like, yeah, Jesus doesn't count. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. I mean, and after the fact, after Jesus, we used to think, you know, God's gonna, we're gonna serve God and then Jesus is gonna establish his kingdom and then he's gonna give us rewards and that's how it's gonna be. We used to view him that way, but when he rose from the grave, we understood he was about this whole new and different thing and it blows our mind. God doesn't keep count of people's sins. And what Paul is getting at, it's so revolutionary. Paul is saying, God is about a New Testament covenant love, not about contracts. You see, a contract is a give and take. But a covenant is just a give. See, a contract, this is what it's designed to do. Here's what I'm going to do, and then here's what you're going to do. That's a contract, both sides. A covenant is one-sided. A covenant just says, here's what I'm going to do, regardless of what anyone else does. Here's who I'm going to be. And you can make a covenant of hatred as well as a covenant of love. Some of you guys have a daughter-in-law who has made a covenant of hatred towards you. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how nice you are. I am going to get offended at absolutely everything. You do this and you're just trying to whatever and you babied my son and I hold these grudges and whatever else. And I mean, that's just the way that it works. That's a covenant of hatred. God, fortunately, didn't form a covenant of hatred. He formed a covenant of love. He says, regardless of what you do, regardless of how you act, it doesn't matter. I'm always, always gonna love you. I'm no longer counting people's sins against them. It's a covenant of love. A contract keeps score. A New Testament covenant love doesn't keep score. A contract is conditional. A covenant is unconditional. A contract is worried about fairness. A covenant is worried about abundance. Abundance. Romans 5.8 puts it this way. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't fair. It wasn't reasonable. It wasn't like he owed it to us. In the midst of our debt, God says, I'm gonna take it even farther. And I'm not worried about what you do. That's covenant love. See, our relationship with God, I like to think of it this way. Our relationship with God had all this debris in it, right? And, uh, you know, our sin against God, we had all these things where, you know, we fell short of God's glorious standard and, you know, this and that and all these mistakes we make compared to God's holiness. And um, it inhibited our relationship with God. Some of you know what that feels like. It's like, man, I got a lot of stuff going on between me and God and it's, it's not good. God is sinless. So last week I said, you need to own your part. God looks at us, he's like, I can't own my part because there isn't a part for me to own. But what are we gonna do? You know, I could pack it all up and put it into the baggage, but he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And we can't resolve it. God's holiness is too great. We can't get it into the resolution bin. So what God did is he made a third option. He said, you know what? I'll take your sins, even though it's your fault, I'll take your sins upon myself and I'll bring it to the cross, right? And he puts it here and he says, I'm gonna put all that stuff at the foot of the cross and I will take it upon myself and it's not your responsibility. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm always gonna love you. It's not a contract. Contracts are breakable. Contracts are weak. Contracts are selfish and self-serving with no real upside. But a covenant love is abundant. A covenant love says, here's what I'll do regardless of what you do. And even though you might not be, I'm gonna take it upon myself. We no longer have very many examples of a covenant love in our society. But I did take the time to write a few of them down. Our Declaration of Independence is an example of a covenant. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were endowed by, and this is interesting, their creator with unalienable rights. These rights include the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No matter what England might say. No matter what other people might say, we believe that all people have these rights. They're inalienable. It's a covenant. 
It's one-sided, no matter what. Now, we broke that covenant with slavery, but that is an example of a covenant. There's another covenant that is in our society. Um, for some people, it's called Christian marriage. Not all marriage, but Christian marriage. What is it? It's a covenant. The traditional vows are covenantial for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part. No matter what. It doesn't matter what you do. Here's who I'm going to be. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. That's a covenant. It's beautiful. I would say the last and probably the best example of a covenant love is parenting. Okay, for a good parent, regardless of how the kid acts, regardless of what they do, I am going to love them unconditionally. And I can think of no more one-sided relationship than a baby. I mean, a baby literally, it poops on you. It screams at you. It spits up and spits in your face, sometimes in your mouth. Oh, I love you. It wrecks your life. It wrecks your hobbies, it wrecks your sleep, it wrecks your sex life, it inhibits everything in the world. Everything you love and hold dear is gone when you have a baby. I had no idea what I was getting into when we had babies. They're like, how's your bundle of joy? Do you love it? And I was like, it is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I mean, it is really difficult. I thought that chewing was a given in life, but when I married, uh, or when I had a baby, it was like, I don't even have time to chew my food. I just shove it in there. I thought going to bathroom was a given, but that's actually a luxury in life you know? And here's the thing. We live in a society that has really demonized covenant love. It sounds unfair. I don't like how that sounds. You know, people say, I just don't want to get taken advantage of with this covenant love thing. That's a big part of why uh, marriage rates and especially birth rates are falling. Because people look at that kind of love. They say, I don't want that. I don't like how that sounds. I don't want to die to myself. But this is what people miss, is there are at least three big supernatural benefits to covenant love that I want to go over with you. First off, who's blessed by covenant love? Is it the kids or is it the parents? Now, I have been a kid, and I am also a parent, and you know, I thought that I loved my parents until I had kids. And when I had kids, I realized, man, my parents loved me and raised me and cared for me way more than I could ever love them. I mean, their love for me is so great. And here's what I realized, is parents are the ones who are blessed for it. Because a covenant love blesses the giver most. Covenant love blesses the giver most. And that might sound foreign to you, that might sound crazy to you, but Jesus, um, Paul uh, reminds of, of Jesus' words in Acts 20, 35. It says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And in the Greco-Roman world of antiquity, this was laughable. This was like, are you serious? It's more blessed to give than to receive. You're out of your mind. It's counterintuitive. It's not natural. And when Jesus taught this, the first Christians had to take it by faith. But today, we have an overwhelming amount of sociological data that tells us Christians who love with a covenant love, and Christians are the most generous and loving people on earth, according to a broad array of surveys and data. That's, that's un undisputable. But um, Christians have the highest level of life, relational, sexual, and emotional satisfaction. It works. Covenant love works. Jesus' words were not incorrect. When he says it's more blessed to give than to receive, it like actually is. Like a covenant love is going to bless your life. You're the one who's most blessed by it when you give it. Number two, covenant love takes the stress out of situations. You know, my wife and I have decided to give one another a covenant love, and it just makes our marriage so much less stressful because I always know that I'm, I'm there. Like, if she leaves, I'm coming with her. That's it. You know, we're married, and I love her, and no matter what she does, no matter what I do, like, it's just, and so many of us, you know, when you're in a relationship that's a contract relationship, it's very stressful. Is it fair? Are they going to leave me? Do you love me? Like whatever, all these things. Some of you have friendships that are really contractual. Like middle school is full of contractual friendships. You know, what's the give and take here? You know, what's the popular? Am I getting out of this? And it's stressful. It's terrible. 
But when you fall into covenant relationships, it's like, man, this is just, I'm so secure. This is wonderful. The stress goes away. The third benefit is that uh, covenant love has way more upside than contractual relationships. I mean, contract relationship mentalities, best case scenario, you get what you give. You know, and nothing takes the romance out of a relationship like a contract mindset. Remember when you got married and you at first had a covenant love? Do you remember when you were younger and your family had a covenant love for one another? Your parents loved you with a covenant love. And as you grow older, all of a sudden that covenant love slips into a contract love. You better come home for Thanksgiving or I'm writing you out of the will. Right? You know, all this, you better do this and you better do that. And it is just way more stressful, isn't it? I mean, covenant love is the best for the giver too. Because when you get in a contract love, all of a sudden you're offended over everything. And they don't whatever. And I don't know, all I do is give and all I do is whatever. And covenant relationships, there's so much upside. Man, I've given so much to my kids. I mean, so much. They could never, ever, ever pay me back for how much I've given to them. I mean, that's just it. And yet, there's something that blesses my soul. You know that parable, or not parable, the actual miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men, not including women and children? He takes these loaves, just a couple of loaves of bread and some fishes, and he just multiplies them. He just starts breaking them, and he never runs out, and he feeds this huge, ginormous gathering of people. And I feel like that's what happens in my heart when I give a covenant love. And the math doesn't make sense, but even if you're not a Christian, you have met that person, that Christian that does it. I mean, you see them give generously. It's like, how do they do that? For the last two-thirds of our marriage, my wife has really lived from a covenant love perspective. She just gives love. People are like, how is she so generous? I mean, how does she do this with everybody? Because covenant love, it's not just limited to, the, you know, to your wife, to your husband. It, it can be everybody. And where does it come from? It comes from the Lord. The Lord multiplies our love in our heart. And you see these great Mother Teresa Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, I mean, these people who have lived covenant love lives, and they're the ones we admire most. They're the heroes of our world. I want to share with you a story from my life. This is during the first third of our marriage, during the unhealthy part of Kristen's uh, time with me in our marriage. 14 years ago, her and I were engaged and sending out wedding invitations. And we had this Excel spreadsheet that we amalgamated um, with all the addresses we would need on. It took a while to get it together. And we were addressing envelopes. And uh, as we did each one, I noted right at the start, my wife was deleting the addresses out of Excel, deleting them. And I was like, hey, babe, we might, uh, whoop, whoop, we, might, we might need those, you know, for thank you notes. I mean, later, like, why are you deleting them? And uh, just side note, my wife uh, and I were waiting till marriage um, to share intimacy together, but the doctor had said she needed to start birth control, and she tried birth control for a week. She was already a very emotionally unstable person and unhappy at that time, but um, the birth control pill for her was what I call a crazy pill. Like, she took that and went nuts. I'm talking volatile, absolute, like, it was, I'm scared. You know what I mean? You ever been scared of your own, like, oh my goodness, like, what's going to happen? I don't know. So I was like, hey, babe, why are you deleting those addresses? I think we might, you know, I think we might need those later. You know, no big deal. And she was like, why do you have to be so controlling all the time? I, this is just how I do things. I delete when I'm done. I want to get out. I need to clear out the space in my mind. And I can't think or operate without these addresses gone. Okay? Why do you have to be so mean? Now, um, we'll fault here, truly. Let me just go back to this. Um, this is, this was actually pretty much all her fault. This is, this was her fault right here. Okay, I, mean, I always say, but it actually was like my control and, and, and people who know me, I'm actually a pretty permissive guy. I'm not very, I joke about how I am controlling. I like to whatever, but really truly in our relationship, it is good. I'm not that control, but I looked at, I said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my tone of voice, you know, which was actually nice in that argument, but I'm sorry for my tone of voice. I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. I own my part. 
And she refused to own her part. And there was no way I was going to, and uh, she would not own it. And, and it was a big thing on the table of argument. There's no way we were going to get through it. I mean, here it is. And it's just a roadblock on our table right there. And I own my part. We'll put that in the resolution bin. But this part is still here, unresolved, unresolvable. And uh, I just had to say, I'm going to give it to the Lord. I mean, I own my part, but her part, she wouldn't own. And so I just said, Jesus, I trust you with this. And I took it off the table of argument. I said, this isn't going to be our thing anymore. And I want to ask you, who benefited from that the most? I did. I mean, I was free of that problem. I just said, I forgive you, and we couldn't, and I wasn't going to let her pack it into baggage. I wasn't going to, you know, she wasn't going to resolve it. And I just said, Jesus, in the same way that you've forgiven me, I'm just, I'm going to forgive her. And I genuinely, genuinely didn't care. You know, and even when we were going through the awkward, frustrating process of re-getting 200 and some addresses that we had deleted, I had already given that to Jesus. It was fine. And in the meantime, we had a great relationship, free of issues. Because even though it wasn't my fault, I could take responsibility. Because Jesus had already taken responsibility for things I'd done. And you know what? I realized in that moment, a covenant love blesses the giver more than the receiver. I was so blessed by it. It was just, it was easy. And this is what Jesus meant. John 13, 34, some of you know this. Jesus says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as, keyword, just as I've loved you, so you should love each other. Another translation says, so you must love one another. What does he mean by just as? How did Jesus love us? Well, he died on the cross for our sins. That's the Sunday school answer. Are we all supposed to then die on the cross for somebody's sins? No. What he means by just as is a covenant love. He's saying you're called to this covenant, selfless love. That's what he means by just as. And this is what it means to be a Christian. We bring a covenant love to our friends, to our family, to our business partners, to our children, to our parents. And when we get offended, and when they won't own their part, even after we've owned ours, we bring it to Jesus and say, God, no matter what, no matter what this thing is, this baggage, these issues, these problems, these reasons, these things, I'm not going to get offended. I'm not going to give my power away. It doesn't mean enabling somebody. It doesn't mean being a codependent. Sometimes the loving thing and the nice thing are two different things. Like, it would be unloving of me not to discipline my kids sometimes. I discipline them even though it's not the nice thing, it's not the kind thing. That is the loving thing. I'm not challenging you to be, you know, a doormat in that, in that fashion, but I am challenging you to always choose love. What is the loving thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? That's covenant love. And I think what the devil has done today in America is he has subtly led us back into contract relationships. And I know of no better way to remove all the romance from a relationship, all of the joy from a relationship, all of the deep, intimate connection from a relationship than to replace a covenant mindset with a contract one. A contract mindset, no wonder why people don't want to get married. It's just a give and take. It's just a domestic business partnership. It's just a friendship where we're keeping score and you know, you know that if you screw up, they're gone. And this is so many people's, and of course your life is stressful. And this is the way the youngest generation lives. You know it, the social media generation, the Instagram generation. As soon as you stop getting likes, as soon as you stop getting dopamine hits, as soon as, now the balance is out and this isn't fun, I'm out, I'm gonna go pick somebody else. And it's miserable, right? This is the LA mindset. You go to LA and whatever, and nobody really cares about it. They're nice, they're whatever, you know, but it's just a give and take. And as soon as that's gone, and of course you're lonely. And of course you're unsatisfied in relationships. That's a contract mindset. But when you love like Jesus loved, it's great. It's wonderful. It's free. I forgive. 
And the table of argument is clear and you don't feel like a victim and you don't feel taken advantage of and you don't feel like they're gonna, you just always know I am a giver because God gave to me. I love the way that Paul wraps up the passage. I want you to see this. He says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us and we speak for Christ when we plead. And I want you to see this. Come back to God. Come back. And today, there's some of you, you know, long ago you loved Jesus, but you're at this place where your heart feels cold. And I think the act of worship, the act of intimacy with Christ is loving others in the same way that he loved us. Do you want to feel close to God? Do you want an intimate relationship with God? Then love like Jesus loved. That's what coming back to God means. Some of you are like, I want to come back to God. How do I do it? You love like Jesus loved. And the way that that, the way that you receive, because a lot of you are like, well, I can't even do that. How could I even do that? The way that you do that is receive forgiveness from God. Because when you receive forgiveness, when you come to God and say, I need your grace, and he gives that to you, all of a sudden you want to give to others. You want to allow others to have that same, you want to be his ambassador giving that to other people when you receive. And today I'm looking at you and I'm asking you to come back to God. Say, Jesus, I need your grace and forgiveness for my sins in my life. And in the same way that you have loved me, I now resolve to love others. And I know there's some of you who are at church today and you've got some people who have hurt you, betrayed you, done some bad stuff to you and it doesn't feel fair. Maybe last week you owned your part You focused on the part that you could control and it made your relationship somewhat better. But today, I want to challenge you to take care of the other 80%. And the good news is, Jesus will help you with that. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. While we were still sinners, God made us right with him. You don't have to get them to resolve it. You don't have to get them to own it. The good news is the part of the problem that we thought we didn't have control over, we can do something about. Jesus already did something about it. So you look to God, receive forgiveness from him, and then you give it to them. And here's what this looks like. I wrote down four simple steps to do this because go to Jesus, bring it to the cross. What does that actually mean? How do we actually do that? I wrote down four simple steps to do this and you probably want to do these. Even if you're not a Christian, these are super powerful. The first one is forgiveness. Okay, and this is a tough thing. Most people don't understand. Forgiveness is not a feeling it is a discipline it's not just a decision it's a discipline that you have to practice if you talk to my wife there are times in our relationship where she doesn't just have to forgive me day by day hour by hour but minute by minute second by second she has to practice the process of forgiveness with me it's just a discipline it's a disposition of life I am going to be a forgiving person and that does not mean you enable a narcissist what it means is you choose love always it means you release them of ill will and you choose to do the loving thing whatever that might be what is the love what does love require Sometimes it requires discipline. Sometimes it requires grace. But it's always clear. Number two, stop keeping score. Covenant relationships, they don't keep score. We give love and we give things without worrying about what we'll get in return. And for some of you, this is like kind of mind-blowing. I mean, some of you, you know scorekeepers in your life. Some of you, you're like me. I can remember so many different little details about different things that people have done. I'm not as good as my wife. She can remember everything I've ever said or done in the context of an argument. But I can remember little things, and I know who owes me, and I know all this stuff, and that's a guaranteed way to remove all the upside out of all of your relationships. Do you want to live a life where there's no upside in relationships? Some of you, you know exactly what that feels like because that's your life right now. And you look at your mother-in-law and you've been keeping score and you remember last Christmas and this thing and you went to his family and you did all the stuff and you can remember and congratulations on achieving a net neutral in your life. How's it feel? Probably fine at best. Probably terrible most of the time. Stop keeping score. 
Give love with no strings attached. That's what love is after all. And I think there are so many people in American life, Satan has done such a good job of shifting our mindset from a covenant love to a contract love. There are many of us, we have never actually given love because everything that we've given has a string attached. How is that love if there's a string attached? How is that love if you're keeping score? It's not love. And this week, there's some of you who for the very first time are gonna give love and it's gonna be amazing. It's incredible. Stop keeping score. Next one, believe the best. And this one's um, tough for me. I, believe it or not, have had a tough time believing the best about people. Um, Shortly after I gave my life to Christ, I had a problem with trust. Not a trusting person, naturally. And I had a mentor say, John, I want you to extend trust before it's earned. I was like, I'm not gonna get raked over the coals. I'm not gonna let people take advantage of me. Like, I, I I don't trust people, you know? They gotta earn it. And he looked at me and he said, here's the deal. If you extend trust before it's earned, you are gonna get taken advantage of a few times in your life. It's gonna cost you a few thousand bucks, maybe more. But what you'll get in return is open, joyful relationships with most everyone you meet. And how much would you give to have that? And I was like, wow, that's, a, that's not a bad idea. And I'm not like naive, I'm not walking in it. But in general, I extend trust before it's earned to most people. And I have been taken advantage of a few times in my life. But there are hundreds and hundreds of other times where I've had great open relationships because I just choose to extend trust before it's earned. It's much, much easier that way. I like most people because of it. Number four, um, put their needs ahead of your own. Here's what I need and I need and whatever. And sometimes my need, a lot of times my need is to rip them a new one and let them know precisely how they screwed up and what it looked like and here's the error and here's what happened. This is why that was a foolish choice and what were you thinking? Their need is encouragement and vision and loving, patient teaching and development and assurance that I will never leave them or forsake them. And this is how Jesus first loved us. And in the same way that he loved us, so we must love one another, putting their needs ahead of our own. That's how we do it. You know, as we wrap this up, I want to go back to the address story. where Kristen was deleting those addresses. Kristen and I have a great marriage. Um, not because it's equal or fair. That would just be an okay marriage. But we actually have an exceptional marriage. We do. I mean, not because we're exceptional people, it's because of um, God's example and a decision to make a covenant love for one another in our marriage. And I'll be honest, some years, especially recently, have been unfair for my wife. I've been sick. I have some medical issues and I've been weak and sinful and angry and she's given me covenant love and I'm grateful for that. But our first few years of marriage, um, it was not fair for me. You know, she was not healthy or well. I would say in many ways, mentally, she was in the fight of her life. And that address story was a big part of that time. And it wasn't fair for me at all. I mean, there were times where she was unfaithful, unreasonable, unstable, volatile, and unfair. And often she was not sorry. But if you ask me during that time, like, I loved our relationship. I loved our first year of marriage. I had an awesome time. I mean, she was struggling a lot, but I was like, this is great. Our first year was awesome because I chose to give her a covenant love. And a covenant love blesses the giver more than the receiver. A covenant love, like I was never stressed. I always knew how I was gonna act. It wasn't a problem. And a covenant love just multiplies abundance in your heart. I mean, my heart just got bigger and bigger and bigger for her during that first year of marriage. It was so good. I loved it. And I know, I know, there's some of you here today, right now, who you got some relationships in your life. I mean, the, the balances are unbalanced. The weight is unfair. The problems are unreasonable. And you've owned your part, and that's fair, and that's contractual, and that's what every average person would do. But today, I want to call you to come back to God. I want you to be God's ambassador. 
to the people in your life that you're called to love. You know, and love doesn't attach strings. That's just mutually beneficial contractual agreements. I want you to love. Remove the strings. Look at your son, look at your daughter and say, I love you, I care, I'm gonna choose the loving thing. That means forgive, that means stop keeping score, that means believing the best, and that means putting their needs ahead of your own. And right now, I know God is bringing some names and relationships and context to your mind and heart. Today, I want you to act on it. I want you to come back to God. And that means bringing all of this, the baggage, the problems, the reasons, the things to the cross and saying, God, no matter what it is, no matter whose fault it is, I just trust you with all of it. I'm gonna clear out the tables in my life and I'm going to interact with people uninhibited. I'm not worried about keeping score. I'm not worried about being taken advantage of. I'm extending trust before it's earned because of the way you first loved me. I'm coming back to you. I'm loving like you do. This is why Christians have changed the world. This is why atheists hope that their daughter marries a Christian. Because we have this supernatural advantage and it blesses the world and it blesses people around us, but it blesses us even more. The words of the Lord Jesus, don't forget him. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So I wanna challenge you to do this this week. I believe it'll bless your life. As we close, please stand to your feet. I'd like to have a prayer for our churches. God in heaven, I thank you for your example. Lord, I thank you that because you first loved us, we're able to love one another with this supernatural covenant love. God, today, would you give our church the faith and the discipline and the courage to bring a covenant love to our friends, family, workplaces, marriages? Would you restore relationships? Would you turn graves into gardens? Would you bring beauty from ashes and brokenness, Lord? You are the God of second chances. And would you make our church just a place that is known for this incredible love, the same way that you loved us, Lord? Would we really be a place where that's how we love the rest of the world? Just thank you so much for your grace and mercy and example. Totally sufficient for us, all that we need. In the name of Jesus, we ask and pray these things. Amen.